From The Conversation, this is Essays on Air, where we bring you the best and most beautiful writing by Australian researchers. Today, Billy Griffiths, a research fellow at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation, is reading his essay titled, How Archaeology Helped Save the Franklin River. On the 1st of July 1983, in a dramatic 4-3 decision, the High Court of Australia ruled to stop the damming of the Franklin River. It brought an end to a protracted campaign that had helped bring down two state premiers and a prime minister, as well as overseeing the rise of a new figure on the political landscape, the future founder of the Greens, Bob Brown. The fact that a remote corner of southwest Tasmania became the centre of national debate reflects what was at stake in the campaigns against hydroelectric development. For many, like novelist James McQueen, the Franklin was not just a river. It is the epitome of all the lost forests, all the submerged lakes, all the tamed rivers, all the extinguished species. The campaign was a fight for the survival of a corner of Australia untouched by man. It was a fight for the right of wilderness to exist. It is a wild and wondrous thing, Bob Brown wrote of the Franklin River in May 1978. And 175 years after Tasmania's first European settlement, the Franklin remains much as it was before man, black or white, came to its precincts. But it was not only the idea of wilderness, of an ancient, pure, timeless landscape that saved the Franklin. The archaeological research that took place during the campaign was at the heart of the High Court decision. Far from being untouched and pristine, southwest Tasmania had a deep human history. What was undoubtedly a natural wonder was also a cultural landscape. The archaeological site at the centre of the campaign was, for a time, known by two names, Fraser Cave and Kudakana. Kevin Keenan, a caver and the first director of the Tasmanian Wilderness Society, was the first to rediscover the site. He and Greg Middleton recorded it on the 13th of January 1977 as part of a systematic survey of the lower and middle Gordon and Franklin Rivers. They were aware that the Monolithic Hydroelectric Commission was considering the region as the site for a new dam, and they were searching for something, maybe a big whiz-bang cave, that might save these valleys from being flooded. In an attempt to raise awareness of this threatened landscape, they started a tradition of naming rock features in the southwest after the political figures who would decide their fate. Fraser Cave was thus named after the sitting Prime Minister, Malcolm Fraser. There was also a Whitlam Cave, a Hayden Cave, and a Bingham Arch. When the Tasmanian Nomenclature Board caught wind of this tradition, they accused Keenan and other members of the Sydney Speleological Society of gross impertinence for naming caves outside their state. In mid-1982, at the suggestion of the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre, Fraser Cave became Kudakana, which means spirit in the oral tradition nurtured by the dispossessed Tasmanian Aboriginal community on Babel Island in Bass Strait. But although Keenan admired the natural splendour of Kudakana in 1977, he did not immediately recognise the artefacts it contained as human-made. It was not until he returned in February 1981 that he realised what he had found. He and the new director of the Tasmanian Wilderness Society, Bob Brown, and its secretary, Bob Burton, were searching the remote valley for evidence of a convict who had supposedly perished in the region after escaping the Macquarie Harbour Penal Station. 
The story conjured the wildness of the country, and the discovery of his bones might help bring publicity to their campaign against the dam. But when they climbed through the entrance of Kutakana, they were amazed to find a sea of stone artifacts and ashy halves extending into the dark. These were no convict bones. Three weeks later, a team of archaeologists, cavers and national parks officers rafted down the Franklin River to investigate. It was already dark on the 9th of March 1981 when they tied their boats to the riverbank. They had a deep chill after hours navigating the fast-falling river, hauling the aluminium punt and rubber dinghy over successive rapids, journeying deeper into the dense rainforest. The rain picked up again as they unloaded their gear and took shelter in the mouth of the cave, which opened like a huge curved shell. Some of the team started a small smoky fire to cook their dinner, while others, with the light of their torches, ventured into the cavern. Kudakaina opened out like an aircraft hangar and extended for almost 200 metres into the cliff. But it was not its scale that excited them. It was the idea that this remote cave, buried in thick, horizontal rainforest, could have once been home to a thriving human population. Too tired to erect their tents, they unrolled their sleeping mats on the disturbed floor at the cave entrance. It later occurred to them that they were probably the first people to sleep there in around 15,000 years. Over the following days, as rain poured outside, the team surveyed Kutkana. The archaeologists, Rhys Jones and Don Ranson, opened a small trench where the black sediment of the floor was covered by a thin layer of soft stalagmite. The test pit only extended to a depth of 1.2 metres before it met bedrock, but it yielded an extraordinary 75,000 artefacts and 250,000 animal bone fragments. This small pit represented about 1% of the artefact-bearing deposit, making the cave one of the richest archaeological sites in Australia. In terms of the number of stone tools, Jones said to one journalist, much, much richer than Mungo. The archaeological remains at Kutakana told a remarkable story. The tools appeared to be a regional variant of the Australian core tool and scraper tradition found across the mainland during the Pleistocene, suggesting immense chains of cultural connection before the creation of Bass Strait. The bone fragments were also curious. Most had been charred or smashed to extract marrow, and almost all, 95%, were wallaby bones suggesting a finely targeted hunting strategy, similar to that found in the Dodogne region in France. But most surprisingly, underneath the upper layer of halves, there were angular fragments of limestone that appeared to have shattered and fallen from the cave roof at a time of extreme cold, forming rubble on the floor. It was one of the main pieces of evidence that led Jones to speculate in his diary. Is this the late glacial technology? The possibility of Ice Age dates conjured the image of a dramatically different world. Pollen records in the region revealed that what is now rainforest was once an alpine herb field, like the tundra found in Alaska, northern Russia and northern Canada. 20,000 years ago, the mighty trees of ancient Gondwana land had retreated to the river gorges, where they were irrigated and sheltered from fire, while wallabies and wombats roamed the high, open plains above. The cold blast of Antarctica only 1,000 kilometres to the south, had dropped temperatures by around 6.5 degrees Celsius. A 65 square kilometre ice cap presided over the central Tasmanian plateau, feeding a 12 kilometre long glacier that gripped the upper Franklin Valley. 
icebergs floated off the Tasmanian coast. At the height of the last ice age, Kutakaina was home to the southernmost humans on Earth. The people of southwest Tasmania hunted red-necked wallabies on the broad, open slopes of the Franklin Valley. They collected fine stone from the glacial meltwater gravels and chipped them into tools, and they sheltered beside fires in the mouths of deep, limestone caverns. They alone, Jones reflected, may have experienced the high-latitude, glacier-edge conditions of a southern ice age. Significantly, during a separate excavation near the confluence of the Denison and Gordon rivers, archaeologists also discovered tools and charcoal dating to 250 to 450 years ago, long after the ice cap had melted and the rainforest had returned. It revealed that the river valleys of southwest Tasmania had a recent, as well as a deep, Aboriginal history. The rediscovery of Kutakaina made the front page of the local and national newspapers and was discussed on the floor of Parliament. And so the list goes on, Mr Speaker. Environment protection. Internationally, Mr Speaker, again. There is far too much. Mr Speaker. surprisingly, it was restricted to the margins of the conservation campaign. John Mulvaney later reflected on the productive, albeit tense, alliance between archaeologists and conservationists during the campaign. We claimed an Ice Age environment of tundra-like grasslands where their dearly loved primeval forest was supposed to have stood eternally. By discrediting the image of a forest wilderness, we were ruining their image and battle cry. Added to this tension was the animosity the Tasmanian Aboriginal community felt towards both the archaeologists for fossicking on their land and the conservationists for suggesting they had never lived there. Their activism during the campaign had profound implications for the Australian archaeological community. But while Aboriginal leaders such as Rosalind Langford and Michael Mansell were eager to regain control of Kutakaina, the most sacred thing in the state, they also recognised the value of the history that had been uncovered. As Mansell said, The fact that Aborigines could survive physically and culturally in adverse conditions and over such a long period of time helps me counteract the feeling of racial inferiority and enables me to demonstrate within the wider community that I and my people are the equal of other members of the community. At the 1981 Tasmanian Power Referendum, 47% of the electorate voted in favour of the Gordon Below Franklin Dam. But, remarkably, there was also a 45% informal vote. Tens of thousands of voters had scrawled no dams on their ballot papers. The unprecedented write-in had been organised by the Tasmanian Wilderness Society, led by Brown. It repeated this highly organised campaign-oriented strategy at local, state and federal elections throughout 1982. The federal leader of the Australian Democrats, Don Chip, also recognised the mood of the electorate against the dam, and in August 1981, he initiated a Senate inquiry into the federal responsibility in assisting Tasmania to preserve its wilderness areas of national and international importance. Jones, Mulvaney and the executive of the Australian Archaeological Association were among the many to make submissions to the new Senate Select Committee. The Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre also made a submission, drawing upon the archaeological research to underline the cave's great historical importance. But they also made a more personal plea. The Franklin Caves form part of us. We are of them and they of us. Their destruction represents a part destruction of us. This advocacy had a profound influence. 
Several members of the Senate Select Committee flew into the Franklin Valley to see the ongoing archaeological work, and when the committee presented its report on the future demand and supply of electricity for Tasmania and other matters, the archaeology dominated the other matters. Apart from any other reasons for preserving the area, they concluded, the caves are of such importance that the Franklin River be not inundated. Prime Minister Fraser heeded the conclusions of the report. He did not want the Franklin Dam built, but he was reluctant to intervene in what he regarded as a state matter. So he did not act when construction on the dam began in July 1982. On the 14th of December 1982, the same day the region was formally listed as a World Heritage Site for its natural and cultural value, a chain of rubber rafts blocked the main landing sites along the Franklin River. Protesters occupied the dam site and rallies were held in cities across Australia. By autumn 1983, 1,272 protesters had been arrested during the Franklin blockade, and nearly 450 had done time in Hobart's Risdon prison, including Mansell and Langford, who were charged with trespass on their return from visiting Kutakaina. While the blockade continued, and with a federal election just around the corner, the ALP made a snap change in its leadership on the 3rd of February 1983. It replaced Bill Hayden, who had voted against Labor's policy to stop the dam at the party's national conference, with Bob Hawke, who had voted for it. And in a tumultuous few hours of Australian political history, Fraser called an early election on the same day. It would turn out to be a grievous political miscalculation. Neither Fraser nor Hawke believed the Franklin River dispute decided the 5th of March 1983 election, but the outgoing Deputy Prime Minister, Doug Anthony, was adamant. There is no doubt that the dam was the issue that lost the government the election. On the 31st of March, the new Hawke government passed regulations to prevent further construction on the Franklin Dam. Tasmanian Premier Robin Gray took the matter to the High Court, challenging the constitutionality of Hawke's interventionist legislation. His appeal failed by the narrowest of margins. The judges in the majority considered that the Commonwealth had a clear obligation to use its external affairs power to stop the proposed dam, as the inundation of the Franklin River, including Kutakaina Cave and Dean Arena Cave, would breach the World Heritage Properties Conservation Act and damage Australia's international standing. They also invoked the Commonwealth power to make laws with respect to Aboriginal people. The Franklin River campaign has entered the folklore of Australian environmentalism as a green victory, a battle won, in Clive Hamilton's words, through the intrinsic worth of wild places. But behind the scenes, it was the deep Aboriginal history of the region that pushed the decision over the line. The archaeological evidence featured in every report about the judgement, and privately Malcolm Fraser considered it to be the deciding factor. If you like essays on air, then check out In Depth Out Loud, a podcast from The Conversation UK. Our latest episode is on transhumanism and how the quest for technology to be the salvation of humankind neglects to consider some darker truths that could lead to dystopia. Transhumanism is the idea that humans should transcend their current natural state and limitations through the use of technology, that we should embrace self-directed human evolution 
If the history of technological progress can be seen as humankind's attempt to tame nature to better serve its needs, transhumanism is the logical continuation, the revision of humankind's nature to better serve its fantasies. That's In Depth Out Loud. Find it on theconversation.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. Today's episode of Essays on Air was an edited extract from Billy Griffith's book, Deep Time Dreaming, Uncovering Ancient Australia. The episode was recorded and edited by Sibylla Gross. You can see a full list of audio and music credits on our website at theconversation.com.